Good morning, everybody. Thank you for those who are joining us live on the live stream or however you might be listening. Thanks for making us part of your day. One more announcement before we dive into this week's message. On Tuesday night, May 26th, we have something called Freedom Session, and it's their graduation. Freedom Session celebrates the freedom, the hope, the joy that we have in Jesus Christ. And if you would like to be a part of what's taking place at that graduation, we invite you to email carol at freedomsession at erbc.ca to hear great stories of life change. She'll, she will send you a Zoom invite, and you can hop in at 7 o'clock Tuesday night, May 26th. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Freedom Session. Thank you that we are seeing lives transformed by you. And as we continue to think about the book of Revelation and the scriptures as a whole and the life that we live, may it be continued to be transformed by you. So guys, God, we pray that you would open our eyes that we might see you more clearly, that you would open our hands that we might serve you more fully and open our minds that we might understand you more deeply. God, may my words fall down so yours be lifted up that we might embrace the good news and the hope in the book of Revelation. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name, amen. About a month ago, I received a text from my wife and it went something like this. Bwa-ha-ha-ha-ha. You're watching a dance movie on your lunch hour? Now, if you're not familiar with Netflix, here's how it works. You're only allowed so many screens to watch at a particular time. And while I was at work, my kids were at home and they wanted to hop on. Now allow me to defend myself. One, it was not a movie, it was a documentary. Second, it's not like there were a bunch of people twirling around on the platform. This was Michael Jordan's The Last Dance in his final year with the Chicago Bulls in 1998. If you're like me and you're a sports fan, this has been a great solve for what's been a horrible injury with having no sports available for us. I don't know about yourself, but I am waiting and yearning for sports to come back. So when Netflix announced that this documentary was coming out, I was waiting for a month for it to take place. Now, maybe you don't know who Michael Jordan is, and that's okay. Let me tell you a few things about him. He is arguably the greatest basketball player of all time. He is so popular that he is the world's most popular athlete 20 years after he retired. His shoe brand in a sport dominated by shoes is so popular that he sells more shoes than all the other current basketball players combined and doubled. Michael Jordan is a big deal. So I've been enjoying watching this documentary, The Last Dance. And what I've really enjoyed is watching all of these Hall of Famers who are incredible basketball players in their own rights talking about Michael Jordan. Charles Barkley, one of my favorites who lost to the Chicago Bulls one year in the finals said, I was the best basketball player on the floor every time I played, except when I played Michael Jordan. Magic Johnson, who's also considered one of the greatest players of all time and has this million dollar smile said, I don't like to lose in the finals, but I just knew it was Michael Jordan's time. Patrick Ewing, the all-star center for the New York Knicks said, doing this documentary is painful for me because I don't want to relive these memories of mine when Michael kept beating me. But I think one of my favorites is a guy by the name of Reggie Miller, perhaps not as well known as the others. And he was a shooting guard on the Indiana Pacers and a Hall of Famer in his own right. He was a rookie and he was playing against Michael Jordan. And at the end of the first half, he looked at Michael and he said to him, you walk on water? You only have a few points. 
And he said, Michael looked at him, smiled and went. By the end of the game, Michael Jordan had 37 points and basically shut down Reggie Miller in the second half, looked at him and said, don't ever talk smack to black Jesus. The best players in the world were falling short of the glory of Michael Jordan. There's a certain amount of hubris that it takes to play professional sports. It might be confidence for some. Even role players need to know that they're going to make that big shot. For others, that confidence bleeds into arrogance that nobody is better than them. In the NBA, no star shone as brightly as Michael Jordan's. Well, I'm certainly a big sports fan. I don't call Michael Jordan black Jesus. I don't refer to a particular oiler as Connor McSavior but I do enjoy the names that they give each other. But as good as they are, they still lose occasionally. They're getting old and eventually they're going to retire like everybody else. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them up to Revelation chapter two and three. If you have a Bible with you, uh, Revelation's the last book of the Bible. The big numbers are the chapter numbers, the small numbers are the verse numbers. But if you just have a phone or a tablet, you can certainly download the app at bible.com slash app. Over the last couple minutes, I just spent some time telling you about how good Michael Jordan is. But last week, Pastor Mel spent an entire message telling you about the glory, the majesty, the power of Jesus Christ. We heard with our ears and we saw with our mind's eye this beautiful picture described of Jesus in the second half of Revelation chapter one. It talks of his hair being so bright, it shines like wool how his eyes were like blazing torches, how he wore a robe that went down to the floor with a golden sash, how he holds the seven stars in his right hand and how he walks among the seven lampstands. Over the next two weeks now, we're going to be looking at the seven churches of Revelation. And here's how we're going to break it down. And I'd like to thank Anne Graham Lutz for the idea. We're going to look at churches one, three, five, and seven this week and the arrogance that they portray. Next week, we're going to look at churches two, four, and six and the insignificance they feel. As we listen to God's words to the churches, I want you to listen to four different aspects that takes place in most, not all, but most of the letters. Jesus is going to describe himself, then he's going to affirm the church, he's going to correct the church, and he's going to give a promise to the church. So a description, an affirmation, a correction, and a promise. Let's begin with Revelation chapter two, verses one to seven. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships from my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. 
in each of God's letters to the churches, Jesus reminds them of an aspect of who he is. If, if you have your Bibles in front of you, you'll see that description of Jesus in chapter two, verse one, is absolutely identical to the preceding verse of Revelation one, verse 20. The seven lampstands actually represent the seven churches and Jesus is walking among them and has intimate knowledge of what's taking place. I like Pastor Mel's idea that he gave me of Jesus being a hope inspector. He's walking around, he's observing, he's taking notes. The stars in the right hand represent the angels to the churches. After giving this comprehensive assessment, Jesus recognizes something that's taking place in the city of Ephesus. As a city, it was considered the metropolis of Asia. It was the capital of the province. It had the greatest harbor in all of modern day Turkey and the crossroads were there to hit every significant trade route and every major city. There was a pride about that city and that pride lent itself into the church. In giving you a list of their pastors, you would almost think I'm making it up. You know who pastored the church of Ephesus? The apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament. One of their other pastors, the apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation that we're reading right now. Another pastor, Timothy, one of the apostle Paul's mentors. Can you imagine how good the preaching would have been at this church? It was a flagship church in the first century. It was Ephesus. By the time Revelation was being written about 96 AD, the Ephesian church was in their second generation of faith. The kids had grown up in the church, watching their parents in the church. They were starting to get a little bit lax. If you were curious about what type of church it would be, you could just ask them, they would tell you. We have the best preaching in all of Asia. Rigorous theological training for all of our leaders. We've endured great persecution. When other speakers come and ask to be a part of what's happening here, we say to them, you'll have to talk to somebody about that first. Because if you don't meet our standard, we're gonna ask you to leave. The irony is Jesus didn't even need to affirm how well thought of this Ephesian church was. They knew it about themselves, which leads us to our first point. Remember your first love. When I was in college, uh, the dorm that I was a part of had the highest GPA, the highest marks uh, of any dorm three or four years in a row, which is a pretty impressive feat considering that there were 14 other dorms on the college campus I went to. One of my friends received a full ride scholarship for his master's degree in philosophy, which is not easy to do. Another friend of mine has his doctorate in theology and he's friends with the guy who married uh, Prince uh, Harry and Kate. But probably the smartest guy on the floor is now the head of a philosophy department at a very prestigious university. When people would talk to him, they would say about that guy, wow, is he smart, but what a jerk. One of my favorite passages on love in all of the scriptures comes from John 13, 34 and 35, where Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you love one another. When an expert of the law comes up to Jesus in Matthew 22, he asks him, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replies, love God, love people. Here at Ellerslie, we like that response so much, we made it into our mission statement. The reason we exist as a church here at Ellerslie is to make disciples who love God, love others, and serve the world. 
by all means continue to strive to have great theology, but our first love is not knowledge. It's God himself and those made in his image. When we have guests walk into our church, we want them to feel the incredible love of Jesus. When we have guests walk into our home, we want them to feel the incredible love of Jesus. And it's in this time of darkness when love shines brightly. If you're an essential worker, thank you so much for everything you do for our city. But this is not a time for pride or for arrogance. This is a time to realize that God has placed you in this position to show his love to whoever it is that you're serving. As individuals, we make up God's church and we are called to bring hope to the world. This promise has a beautiful symmetry to it at the end of the passage, where it was pride that caused Adam and Eve to eat from the tree in the garden. It was the overcoming of pride that God invites us to eat the tree of the life in the paradise of God. My friends, remember your first love. The second church, ironically, is the exact opposite. It's the church in Pergamum. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, otherwise I will soon come to you and will find against them the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it known only to him who receives it. As I mentioned earlier, every letter begins by reminding the church about an aspect of who Jesus is. This time it comes directly out of Revelation chapter 1, verse 16. From his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. It's Jesus who searches our hearts and judges rebels. As followers of Jesus, we can be thankful that sword doesn't come after us, but actually fights for us. Ultimately, Jesus will get his revenge on those who are destroying the church in Pergamum. His church is fighting a pretty big rival. Did you notice though that line at the beginning of verse 13? I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. It's a pretty ominous line. This city was a religious hotbed, an important center for both pagan and imperial religion, not to mention the Jews themselves. Here's a sampling of the gods who were worshiped in Pergamum. Zeus, who's the king of the gods, Athena, Roma, Dionysius, who's the god of drunkenness, Caesar, the emperor, was worshiped there as well, and Asclepios, the god of healing. A little side note that you might find interesting. Have you ever wondered why medical bracelets have a snake on them? I know I have. That snake is a symbol of Asclepios himself, reminding of us of his presence nearly 2,000 years later. I'm sure you can imagine that medicine in the first century isn't exactly what it is now. 
So people mixed their medical knowledge with superstition. One prescription called for worshipers who were sick to lie down in the temple of Asclepios and allow snakes to crawl all over them, hoping that those snake venom would heal them of whatever disease they might have. I'll take today's hospitals. Well, the Ephesian church was proud of their wisdom. The church in Pergamum was proud of how well they loved everyone and got along with other religions. But if you look closely at verses 14 to 16, that's exactly the problem. God didn't doubt that they, lo- that they loved others. He was upset that they so deeply loved these other people that they just started to do whatever they were doing, which leads us to our second point. Focus on the truth. Over the last couple of weeks, Pastor Mel has talked about the three types of worlds that are available to us. There's the world of the street, where we see and believe everything that's all around us. There's the world between our ears, the world of our mind, which we perceive and think to be true. And then the world of the heavenlies, that which God is doing all around us. So let's play a simple game. I'm going to ask you the political leanings of three different places in our wonderful country, and you tell me what you think. Where does Vancouver sit on the political scale? Probably say it leans a little bit left. Where do the prairies sit on the political scale? Probably leaning a little bit right. Where does Toronto sit on the political scale? They are the center of the universe. Hey, Pergamum, says Jesus, get over yourselves and your cultural snobbery. It doesn't matter what you see taking place all around you. It doesn't matter what you think is right or wrong. What matters is what God says. Focus on the truth. And here's the truth. The church is a deeply political organization. Parts of it are going to be supported by the culture at hand, Parts of it, the culture isn't going to like at all. So let me give you an example. Do you know one of the most common commands in the entire Old Testament? Take care of the poor and the widows. 175 times the poor are mentioned in the the entire Bible. Over 100 times widows are mentioned. Here's another one. Social and racial justice. The Apostle Paul in a couple of his letters says something like this, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, Greek or free, Roman, Scythian, slave or barbarian, man or woman, circumcised or uncircumcised, there's only one in Christ Jesus our Lord. Both of these ideas, taking care of the poor and widows and racial justice would lean a little bit left on the scale. But what else does the Bible say? The scriptures talk extensively about the sanctity of life, how everyone is made in the image of God. And upon conception, a baby and a human exists. The Bible is 100% pro-life. The New Testament is also abundantly clear. In fact, the entire scriptures, when is sex okay? Only in the confines of a marital relationship between a husband and a wife. So the Bible, pro-life, understanding the true meaning and desire of sex leans right. Culture should not be defined by how we live. Jesus should define how we live. He is the king of the world and we are called to focus on the truth and then look at that promise of a secret manna, of a white stone, of a new name. 
when an athlete won a contest at the Olympic Games in the first century, that athlete was handed a white stone. That white stone allowed them admission into a celebration afterwards. I realize that culture is incredibly powerful and mostly what it is that we get to see. But Jesus is saying to you, I have an after party that is even better than you can imagine. That's the hope of the promise that Jesus has in store for us. As Jesus is walking around the churches, inspecting them, watching and seeing what's taking place and taking notes, he's correcting these churches. They're a little bit arrogant, but he shows them hope and love and grace. But there's not always a lot of positive things to say. He speaks to the church in Sardis. Revelation chapter three. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven churches of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember therefore what you have received and heard, obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not spoiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. He who overcomes will like them be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. I have three kids. My oldest son, now six years old, by far has the most attitude of the three. His younger brother and sister pretty much just go with the flow. But Beckham, if he doesn't like something, he's going to let you know. My wife and I are pretty good at explaining to him and doing the things that help him understand the process and why it is that we're making the decisions we make. But every now and then we have to say, because I'm the dad, that's why. If you listen again to verse two, you can almost hear the frustration coming through. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The seven stars we're told in chapter one, verse 20, represent each of the angels of the church. The seven spirits we read about in chapter one, verse four, and represents the perfection, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Dad is home. He's not happy. You better listen up. Sardis is one of the richest and most powerful cities, not just in Asia, but in the entire world at the end of the first century. In addition uh, to what's taking place there, pardon me, in addition to what's happening in Sardis and being of all that great wealth, they are also a city on a hill, 1500 feet above the valley floor, considered unconquerable by their enemies. Where wealth flourishes, so do the arts. If you've heard the story of Aesop's fable, Aesop wrote that 2,500 years ago from the city of Sardis. But what happens when you gain prestige? There's this arrogance of status that begins to take place. You stop working as hard. You lose the drive to what got you to the top. You become a little bit complacent. You might be familiar with that verse in Proverbs where it says, pride goes before the destruction, a haughty spirit before the fall. So you know what Jesus does? I'm not making this up. Jesus talks a little trash. At the beginning of verse two, he says, wake up. You can easily read that and say, okay, okay, I'm listening. But the context gets so much better than that. 
I just mentioned a moment ago that Sardis was a city upon a hill, 1,500 feet above the valley floor. The only way you could attack that city is if the guards had just completely fallen asleep, which they did twice. In 547 BC and again in 214 BC, the city was conquered because the guards had fallen asleep. How does Jesus get their attention? By embarrassing them a little bit. He looks at their deeds. He finds them completely insufficient. And he says, you know what you need to do? You need to serve others. One of Jesus' well-known lines comes from Mark 10, verse 45, where he says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The apostle Paul, in talking about Jesus' humility, says these famous words in Philippians chapter two, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Are you lulled to sleep with materialism? with fame, with fortune sweeping through our nation? Have you become enamored with the beauty, the brilliance, the charisma of other Christian leaders? Have you forgotten what the gospel stands for and really you're just seeking for church-wide entertainment? Stop. Ask God to forgive you and think about how can you serve others? I'm a part of a small group that's made up mostly of young families. In this past week, everybody who was on the call said, man, are we struggling with our kids. And so we talked about that for a few minutes and kind of left it aside. We talked about Mel's sermon from last Sunday. But then at the end, we came back to that and said, how can we be better parents? And one of the moms said, this almost seems counterintuitive, but I think we actually need to spend more time with our kids. We need to have fun with our kids. We need to go on mummy or daddy dates. We need to show them that we care about them, that we love them, and that we're here to serve them. I found out a couple of weeks ago that our grade 10 girls have said, how can we serve during this time of quarantine? And so they contacted Pastor Rick and they said, Pastor Rick, are there seniors in our congregation who would love to just have people call and talk to them? I think this is a brilliant idea. How can you serve others? Is it time to look around and see, hey, there's somebody who needs some yard work done and I've got some free time. Do you love baking? Maybe this is a time to make some cookies or some muffins and bring them to your neighbors. What can you do to show somebody that you love them? The church in Sardis may not have received an affirmation, but they still get a promise. For those who overcome will be dressed in white. In the ancient world, white garments were commonly worn at festivals and celebrations. Sardis may have been an impressive city, but Jesus is giving them the hope of the promise. If you overcome, I will invite you to the greatest party, the greatest celebration you have ever seen. You'll be clothed in righteousness and you will be my guests of honor. May we serve well. To quote Romans 12, 3, there's one final church that thinks more highly of itself than it's ought. It's the church of Laodicea. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. 
I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. White clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and solve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. In writing to this seventh and final church, you can almost hear the strength and power by which Jesus talks about himself. These are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. When you watch or read courtroom dramas, there's always an angle that's trying to be played. Can we select the perfect jury to get the outcome we want? Does the judge have a background that we can exploit? Perhaps a little bit of a soft spot. Could this witness prove untrustworthy? Is there a loophole or precedent that we could argue that will get our client off? But Jesus cannot be played. He is the faithful witness, perfectly accurate, completely credible. And while the church arrogantly boasts about self-importance, he reminds them that he is sovereign over all creation and that he is in control of all who are in control. While not as wealthy as Sardis, Laodicea was the banking capital of their particular region and became the wealthiest and most important commercial center in all the province. They thought very highly of themselves. Arguably the most well-known of the seven churches, it's not unusual for church leaders like myself to reference the idea of people being lukewarm, either be cold or be hot. What's the deal with being lukewarm? You might even be familiar with this painting. I know as a young boy, I'd always go to my grandma's house, who's now with Jesus, and I would stare at this painting at times for hours thinking about what it is that Jesus has done and what it means for me today. Allow me to give you some context that you might actually find interesting. The nearest waters to Laodicea were the Lysus River, and it was so muddy that it was completely undrinkable. So the Laodiceans, knowing that they would have to get water from somewhere, built an aqueduct system from a hot springs that was eight kilometers away. By the time that these hot springs arrived in Laodicea, that water which came out boiling hot was now lukewarm. Natives of Laodicea knew this was the case and they would take the water and bring it home. It would cool down if they wanted to drink it. It would be boiled up if they needed to use it to make food. But guests to Laodicea didn't know that. And so they would go to the aqueduct system expecting some cold and refreshing water, put it in their mouth and immediately spit it out because of its tepid temperature. And Jesus is saying, because of your attitude, because you are neither cold nor hot, I spit you out of my mouth. Again, embarrassing the church to a degree. As Jesus goes after, as Jesus corrects them, he goes after what is most important. In verse 17, we read, you, the banking capital of the province, you think you're rich? You are wretched, poor, blind, pitiful and naked. 
But the beautiful thing about Jesus is there never correction without hope. And the hope that we have is something that we can't even buy with money. This isn't an exact reference to the place in Isaiah chapter 55, but it certainly refers to it. And this is what we read in the Old Testament. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. How do you get over your arrogance? Remember your first love. Focus on the truth. Serve others. Choose to worship. This is so cool. I already mentioned that Laodicea was a banking center, but the other two areas of trade in the city, textiles and medicines. You can see why they were so rich. And look what Jesus does in verse 18. You think you have wealth here on earth? I will give you the riches of heaven. You think your textile market is impressive? I will clothe you in righteousness. You have good medicine in Laodicea? My solve will help you to see me even more clearly. None of this can be purchased. Jesus is offering it freely if we choose to worship. And here's our big idea today. In the midst of our arrogance, Jesus shows us hope, love, and grace. In the midst of our arrogance, Jesus shows us hope, love, and grace. Of course, he's going to correct us. We have to correct our children. Sometimes discipline is necessary. Are you in management or run a business? Employees occasionally need correction. Are you a friend or a spiritual leader? Difficult conversations are part of growth. But do you hear Jesus' words? Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. Whoever hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Choose to worship. Do you see what it is that Jesus has to offer? Do you see this incredible hope despite our arrogance? He knows that we need to take our eyes off ourselves, off our problems, off the stuff that we think makes us so special and to focus on him. And do you see that hope-filled promise in verse 21? To those who overcome, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne better than anything this world has to offer. It's the hope that we have in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the promise that we have in Revelation chapter two and three. And where we have found ourselves arrogant, where we have found ourselves better than we should, when we think of ourselves more highly than we ought, please forgive us. Please remind us that ultimate hope, ultimate satisfaction comes in you. Please continue to show us that hope, that love, and that grace so that we might embrace you more fully and serve you more deeply. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.